these challenges of xenophobia and intolerance of migrants and refugees are certainly real. But I think that in some ways we have an opportunity here to reshape the way that humans interact with others. And I mean, these are certainly critical political issues and are probably exacerbated by climate change. But I also think climate change gives us an opportunity to change everything about the way we interact with others. You're listening to Cooler Earth, a podcast of climate exchange. Your weekly dive into energy transitions, sustainability, environmental politics, and all things climate change. Each week, we feature special guests and in-depth discussions with your hosts, Maria Virginia Olano and Amanda Griffiths. It's impossible to escape the topic of migration. From the Trump administration to Brexit and the Brazilian election, nationalism is on the rise. Right. And far-right parties have used immigration as a way to further the platforms and to move their constituents towards the right. And that's what we're seeing all over the world, especially here in the U.S. Traditionally, we think of refugees as people fleeing areas of conflict. But what will happen when people are forced to leave their homes because of climate change? That's actually already happening. Uh, Climate impacts are already forcing families to flee their homes, either by force or by choice, due to water scarcity, crop failure, and rising sea levels. And this may cause as many as 143 million people to be displaced by 2050, according to the World Bank's new report. Since 2009, an estimated one person every second has been displaced by a disaster, with an average of 22.5 million people displaced by climate or weather-related events since 2008. This means that what we are about to see in terms of migration and forced displacement is a magnitude more impactful than what we have already seen due to conflict and violence. And so the real question is, how are we going to be able to cope and how are systems going to be able to adapt to absorb this new reality, Uh, especially when vulnerable populations are much more likely to be displaced by climate change impacts and remain displaced for a longer period of time? The majority of migration will occur within countries, with people relocating from rural areas to urban areas that lack proper infrastructure to support those large population increases. Right. And these are traditionally called IDPs or internally displaced people. And while people displaced within their own boundaries of the country are covered by national law, international human rights law, and the UN guiding principles on internal displacement, and a few other regional instruments, there is a serious legal gap with regard to cross-border movement in the context of disaster and the effects of climate change. These people are in most cases not refugees per se under international refugee law, and human rights law does not address critical issues such as their admission, stay, and basic rights. Criteria, therefore, to distinguish between forced and voluntary movements in the context of disasters have not been elaborated. So the Refugee Convention was created directly following World War II, The definition then, applying mainly to those who had been displaced as a result of the war, is no longer sufficient in recognizing all of those who may be in need of assistance today. At the time it was drafted, a human migration crisis of this magnitude was not expected, and it's not in the framework built to provide aid to migrant populations of several hundred million. Simply amending the existing convention would not be an appropriate solution for addressing this issue for several reasons. Right, and the first of those reasons 
is that the 1951 Convention is under constant scrutiny by developed countries who want to make sure that conditions are more restrictive, not less. Providing aid for re refugees strains governments, and it's politically unpopular, which is why it's unlikely they'll agree to extend the same protections to a group of migrants that is at least 20 times larger. Finally, not all states are even party to the 1951 Refugee Convention. Only 142 states are signatories of both the original convention and the Protocol of 1967. The United States, for example, is only party to the 1967 Protocol. Many countries are not signatories of either, including India and Bangladesh, which are among those expected to have high rises of migrants moving in due to climate impacts. So this year's UN Climate Convention, COP24, kicked off in Katowice, Poland on Sunday, December 2nd. Our second episode this season, we spoke with Janice Cantonari about her work in Kiribati, an island nation whose president made a famous plea for help during the COP negotiations in Copenhagen. As another COP begins, this week we're taking a more in-depth look at climate-related migration. To do so, we are speaking with Erica Bauer, who will be beginning a National Geographic Young Explorers grant in January of 2019 to further research a drought-affected Himalayan community in Nepal. She previously worked for the UN Refugee Agency, UNHCR, in Geneva, focusing on climate-related migration. We spoke to Erica as she prepared to head to Katowice, Poland, for this year's UN Climate Conference, where she will be also releasing a report on gender dimensions of climate change and human mobility, together with UN Women and the Sierra Club. Hi, Erica. Thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Um, so I think we can get straight into it. Could you start telling us a little bit about where your interest in climate-related human migration comes from and what led you to this field of work? Sure. There are two threads that led me to this work. First, like most humans, I exist because my ancestors have moved. Some fleeing persecution as Jews in Eastern Europe, and others escaping the social and ecological tragedy that was the Irish potato famine. As a child, listening to their stories about their own journeys as, as refugees and migrants profoundly shaped my identity and also my interest in this field of work. On the other hand, as soon as I could walk, I would do whatever I could to be barefoot in hiking boots or in hiking boots, immersed in the natural world, preferably at higher elevations. And it was exploring mountains where I first began to see the threats to the natural beauty of our planet, pollution, mountaintop removal, retreating glaciers. It was the awareness that future generations might not have the chance to experience these natural spaces that made me become a budding environmentalist or environmental justice activist. And then it was later, while conducting field research in Nepal, that I first learned how these two threads of my life, environmental justice and social justice, were intertwined. And I guess what really led me to this field of work was the realization that changes to our planet's climate will have a disproportionate impact on those who are most vulnerable and who have contributed the least to our collective climate crisis. And you mentioned Nepal. Can you elaborate a little bit about your experience and your research there with Himalayan and high altitude areas of the country? Sure. So while I was conducting field research in 2013 in the upper Mustang region, I met an elderly woman from a village called Day, whose story I will always remember. She had these charcoal eyes that, that stand out in my mind even today. She explained to me how climactic changes had left her only one option, 
to abandon the land of her ancestors and to relocate. As a remote village with not many alternatives beyond farming, increased exposure to temperature variability, highs and lows, windstorms and, and drought desertification, drying the very land beneath your feet, led this woman and her entire community to earn media recognition as Nepal's first climate refugees. And I say that with quotation marks. This encounter really crystallized something for me. You know, her words and her gaze taught me that climate change is not just a future hypothetical problem of the future, but very much a reality already affecting the lives of the most marginalized on our planet. So it was really realizing that, like my ancestors, this woman and her community were uprooted from their homes but not for political reasons or, or economic reasons. It was because of the climate. Right. And do you think there is a gap in the public perception when it comes to higher altitude communities? Because I think we tend to associate climate-related migration mostly with sea level rise. Um, what that will mean for low-lying communities, such as Pacific Islands. It's really interesting to think through the ways in which climate change is really going to impact communities all over, right? And those that are at higher altitudes as well, which is another critical climate front line. So how do you think we can change that narrative or expand the scope in which we see the threat of climate change? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I guess it's worth mentioning that global warming has a positive correlation with altitude. So a one degree increase in temperature at the sea level corresponds with a two degree increase in high mountain areas. And these high mountain communities are amongst the first to be affected. What can we do to change the narrative? Well, it was realizing this gap that led me and, and a colleague or two colleagues, Mattia um, and Bindu, to apply for a, a grant from National Geographic to, to better understand these narratives around climate and migration in mountainous communities. So I hope we're, we're at least making a first step towards changing that narrative. And you'll be starting off the grant next year in 2019, right? Yeah, we'll start in January. And what do you hope the end product or end result will be from the grant? So we're hoping to do some storytelling work. So we'll put together a couple of long-form pieces, as well as some uh, shorter video and you know, multimedia publications with video and audio and, and images. Um, and we're really excited to also have a research component that's focusing more on the, the scientific and the technical side of, of how these linkages, but that should be complemented by, by these human stories. Um, because when you only have one without the other, it's hard to communicate and make this, this narrative accessible to audiences. And can you elaborate a bit about why you think human stories and narratives are so important? Sure. Human stories make all the difference. You know, when you have a specific image in mind, it's easier to put yourself in this person's shoes. I mean, just one example in the way that it's impacted my life. A year ago in October of 2017, my aunt and uncle lived in California in Santa Rosa. And I say lived past tense because the, the wildfires devastated their home and their community. And it was talking to them and, and hearing their story that really catalyzed in me why this work is so important and why we, we have to mobilize actors across all stages to act in always possible. Um, I, I remember because I was at the climate change negotiations in, in Bonn, COP23, when this happened, and I told colleagues about the story. And all of a sudden, Climate and migration went from this very technical conversation to something intensely human. And then another reason why I think stories are so important is that contrary to sometimes the way it's depicted in media, climate change is never an isolated driver of mobility. It's very much intertwined with other 
social, economic, and political factors. For example, the woman who I mentioned earlier from, from Day Village in Nepal left her home because it was so isolated and there were no other economic alternatives. So the climate impacts became more severe. And my, you know, my aunt and uncle, they were able to recover because they had the resources to bounce back. And most communities across our globe aren't, or many communities, I should say, aren't so fortunate. And stories can help show those levels of complexity. Um, in a way that sometimes a single statistic can't. Definitely. And do you think that layer, that added kind of complexity makes it hard specifically to people who don't believe or deny the science of climate change to prove the fact that climate will actually force people to have to migrate? Because it's kind of a myriad of very complex issues working together. So do you think there is an obstacle there proving the direct link to climate change? Yeah, I mean, attributing a single sudden onset storm or flood or a slow onset drought to climate change is, of course, a, a complicated scientific endeavor. But whether or not climate change is the sole reason these storms or other things happen, or maybe an exacerbating factor, shouldn't really matter in terms of response. I, I, I see what you're saying, though, about how this complexity can be leveraged by deniers. Yeah, I guess it is an obstacle, but it doesn't have to be. So you worked at the UN Refugee Agency in Geneva. In what ways do you see your work there transforming and adapting to a new type of displacement, not necessarily due to conflict per se, but by climate change? Yes. Uh, while I was at UNHCR, which is the Refugee Agency headquarters, I did see an increasing interest in the role of climate change as a threat multiplier. So climate change you know, leads to displacement directly. But it can also make situations um, of maybe political instability or conflict over scarce resources more intense. And it just complicates the many, many factors for displacement. One very compelling example is Somalia, where ongoing drought and desertification and food insecurity, you know, it's risen to the level of a famine in 2011, combined with the insurgency of, of al-Shabaab and, and other um, conflict-related events. I actually visited UNHCR in Geneva over the past summer when I was working at the UN headquarters there. And we spoke a lot about the legal gaps that exist to address climate-related migration and forced displacement. Do you have any experience of, can you elaborate a bit on why that is? Because the definition of refugees, which was taken up with the creation of the United Nations after World War II, is very different one than the climate we see now and the reasons for forced displacement uh, that are present today. So how is that problematic and how can we address that legal gap? Yes. So at this point in the conversation, I guess it's it's relevant to, to clarify the use of the term or to comment on the use of the term climate refugee, which sometimes you hear tossed about. Um, but the reason why I, I believe that term should be avoided is precisely what you just mentioned. Um, so the definition of who is a refugee is very narrow. The 1951 convention defines a refugee as someone with a well-founded fear of persecution on the basis of one of five grounds, their race, their religion, their nationality, their membership in a particular social group, or their political opinion. So at times there are exceptions. In the vast majority of contexts, these criteria are not met by a climate-related disaster. 
Another reason why the, the refugee definition doesn't often apply is that most people who are displaced in the context of climate change are internally displaced. They don't cross borders, and that doesn't fit the definition of who's a refugee, which means crossing borders. Um, so, you know, oftentimes people will say, while I was working at UNHCR, I would have external actors ask, so why can't we just change the convention? I mean, the reality is that there's very little political appetite to renegotiate the convention. And in fact, opening it up would probably result in a far weaker framework with less protection for everyone, including those who it currently protects. So, I mean, for all of these reasons, the term climate refugee is not appropriate and the current refugee framework generally doesn't apply. But then again, I should I should make the caveat that there are exceptions. So, for instance, in the context of Somalia that I mentioned earlier, those who are fleeing in these mixed contexts where there is both conflict and climate were granted refugee status upon arrival in the Dadaab refugee camp of Kenya. So clearly there are some cases where refugee law is appropriate. And that could be under international conventions or under regional conventions in Africa or in, in the Americas. But the vast majority of the time, refugee law is not the appropriate solution. There's really a toolbox of, of legal solutions and policy solutions to this issue. And because every context of climate-related displacement is different, there is no you know, universal silver bullet. It has to be tailored to that particular situation. Have you heard much about the Nansen Initiative? Back in 2011, Switzerland and Norway launched an intergovernmental policy process called the Nansen Initiative, which over the course of many years led consultations with governments and civil society actors in the key hotspot regions of the world, in Horn of Africa and in Pacific and Central America, Southeast Asia and South Asia. And after these consultations, it culminated in a global protection agenda, which was endorsed by 109 governments in Geneva in 2015. So this is isn't a new binding law, it's not a new refugee convention, but it is a, an agenda that outlines this, these tools that I mentioned earlier. So Maria, do you remember that time that we <laughs> drove in a Tesla? It was amazing. <laughs> Honestly, it's one of those things where we've heard how amazing Teslas are, but you never really understand it fully until you are in it and like actually riding it's, inside. Yeah, it's like you're driving in a spaceship. Literally. <laughs> like these really crystal clear screens and you just touch them and decide what you want to listen to. And then you look up and there's no ceiling. Everything <laughs> is so sleek. On that note, we are actually in the middle of our biggest fundraiser yet. And we're giving away three brand new Teslas. Right, we decide for our third annual raffle, three Teslas is very fitting. True. And the winner gets their choice of a Model X, a Model S, or a Model 3 performance for first place. But second and third place also get a car. Just pretty sweet. So where do we find out more about a raffle or purchase a ticket again? Yeah, so if you want to support us on our mission, uh, visit carbonraffle.org where you can get your tickets. So what do those tools look like? Well, for example, humanitarian visas. These are short-term visas for disaster-displaced individuals to reside in, in a country. That's one option. Um, there are other forms of complementary protection and temporary protection. Another option is labor migration. So, for instance, after earthquakes in New Zealand, there have been special categories where New Zealanders can go to Australia to work for short periods of time. This is another thing that's made the international news recently was a special type of visa category for uh, members or individuals from Kiribati 
to go to New Zealand who are particularly climate affected. So we're already seeing massive challenges and very problematic responses to migration and refugee populations fleeing violence and conflict. And it seems that countries are unable or unwilling to deal with these issues and their critical political issues that have also led to the rise of far-right leaders around the world. Is this a trend that's going to get worse and that we're going to see more of with climate-related migration? It doesn't have to. I mean, these challenges of xenophobia and intolerance of migrants and refugees are certainly real. But I think that in some ways we have an opportunity here to reshape the way that humans interact with others. And I mean, these are certainly critical political issues and are probably exacerbated by climate change. But I also think climate change gives us an opportunity to change everything about the way we interact with others. Naomi Klein would say this changes everything. (laughs) And I appreciate your optimism. It's definitely a breath of fresh air in a moment where it feels like everyone just says we're kind of doomed in the political climate and the scientific reality of climate change today. So yeah, it's very nice to hear from you. Uh, And you'll be heading off to COP, the COP negotiation next week, right? Yes. Can you share with us a bit about what you expect to hear or see this year there? What are your hopes or aspirations for these year's negotiations? Absolutely. So one of the big opportunities this year at COP24 is that the task force on displacement, which was created by the Paris Agreement, this is the first time that the UNFCCC has recognized displacement at this level. This task force is going to issue recommendations for approaches to address and also minimize and avert climate-related displacement. Um, So this is a really big year for this issue. And what are the opportunities that would allow for member states and governments to start implementing that? So these recommendations will provide guidance to member states about how they can better integrate considerations around preventing and addressing climate-related displacement. One opportunity is that countries are developing, they're, well, they're revising their nationally determined contributions, their NDCs, as well as their national adaptation plans. And these are, are more national level opportunities to mainstream, I guess, goals that have been set at the international level. You shared with us your concern with the lack of focus on diaspora communities, which is migrants abroad, and how they're caught up in the causes and consequences of climate change. And I believe you were referring to the Arabian Peninsula in particular and how diaspora communities from South Asia are actually now there in the oil industry. Can you elaborate a bit on what you mean by that and what problems you see there? Sure. Well, migrants are are frequently caught in countries that are in crisis. So, for example, you know, if if an earthquake or a storm or a flood or conflict breaks out in a country, it's going to, it often, unfortunately, first and foremost, protects its citizens. So migrants who may be there, um, maybe they don't have access to their passports because their employer has their passports. Maybe they are, are in a less legal situation, their standing is different. Sometimes they're not able to access assistance and relief. So Migrants in Countries in Crisis is an initiative that was launched um, many years ago by the United States and the Philippines to look more specifically at um, their conditions, and they've developed some guidelines for this response. So the reason why I, I highlighted that in our earlier conversation is because this is one of the questions that we're going to explore in this project called Climate Diaspora with the National Geographic Grant. We're hoping to understand you know, what the migrant experience is like and, and how, when they're working in the fossil fuel industry in particular, 
um, they may be caught up in the effects of climate change. Well, our executive director is also going to be there as well and mentioned that he might be running into you there in Poland. So we hope to hear good news back from these negotiations. And that's great to hear. I hope so as well. And I should mention that um, what I'll be doing at COP this year is launching a report on the gender dimensions of climate and mobility together with UN Women and Sierra Club. And we're really excited um, about this report and about making sure that the gender dimension is at the forefront of conversations around mobility. Um, because right now, most existing literature and discussion highlights how women are, are disproportionately affected and vulnerable. But we feel that it needs we need to shift this conversation to show how women are very much leaders in their communities and are very much part of the solution. That's fascinating. And I think it's so critical that precisely what you're trying to highlight, that women, we do tend to be disproportionately affected, not just by climate change, but by violence and gun violence and so many other things. But it's crucial to focus also on the ways in which women are leading the solutions, right? And the changes that need to happen, rather than seeing women as just kinds of victims, which they are, but they're also leading the charge ahead. And so it's very important work. Exactly. And there are ways to build capacity and to actually allow for women's empowerment in these processes. Um, and that's part of the, the objective of this report is to, to highlight the need for, for better knowledge and data, um, for better mainstreaming of gender across all of these policies and practices, but also to really provide training and capacity building for uh, women's empowerment. Right. And I guess that also highlights how much crossover there really is between the development and sustainability agenda at the international level led by the UN and the adaptation to climate change, because all of these things can be done in conjunction and actually help each other as well as solve and adapt uh, to climate change. We can at the same time empower women and girls around the world uh, and spur economic development at the same time. Yes, I completely agree with what you're saying. This has been great, Erica. Thank you so much for all the work that you do and for taking the time to chat with us today. We look forward to seeing your report coming out of COP and best of luck in Poland. Hey, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to talk to you all. And I think um, the more attention we can draw to these issues, the better, because there is so much work that needs to be done. So thank you. If you enjoyed our show, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and don't forget to subscribe on your favorite listening platform and follow us on Instagram at Cooler Earth. Stay tuned for next week's episode and thanks for listening. Stay cool. Stay cool.